0: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. When New York City Councilman Richie Torres of the South Bronx got into the race for Congress, no one gave him a shot. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee didn't support him. The local Democratic Party didn't support him. AOC didn't endorse him. And a notoriously homophobic, pro-Trump Democratic member of the city council was the candidate favored to win the primary. But he didn't. Richie Torres won, and he'll come to Washington not just as a free man politically, but also as the first openly gay Afro-Latino member of Congress. Listen to Torres lean into all aspects of his identity, including growing up impoverished in public housing, his struggle with mental health, and how this informs his goals for Congress right now. Congressman-elect, Richie Torres, welcome to the podcast.
1: It is an honor to be here.
0: So how does it feel? You're a congressman-elect.
1: It is overwhelming. Uh, You know, I never thought as a poor kid from the Bronx that I would become a United States congressman. Uh, You know, I spent most of my life in poverty. I was raised by a single mother who had to raise three children on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was $4.25. You know, I'm a product of public housing, grew up in conditions of mold and mildew, leaks and lead. And so I never thought I would embark on a journey that would take me from public housing in the Bronx to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. And the race itself was a a roller coaster. You know, during the campaign, I contracted COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after the primary, I had to wait six weeks uh, to find out the results of the election. Uh, So it's been quite an experience. Uh, Life never unfolds as you imagine it.
0: So let's talk, uh, before I get into all the politics, let's keep talking about the biography. As you just mentioned, um, you were raised by a single mom. She raised three of you on minimum wage. What does your mom think about what's happened to her son?
1: I have no greater cheerleader in my life uh, than my mother. Uh, you know, a few years ago, she was so enthusiastic about her son in elected office that she took it upon herself to create a Twitter account named Richie's mother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I've always suspected I was the favorite son. So I have a twin brother uh, who we're five minutes apart. Who's older? Uh, Fraternal to he's older. I mean, he's biologically older. I'm temperamentally older. (laughs) And uh, I jokingly tell people I'm an 80-year-old curmudgeon masquerading as a Uh, (laughs) 32-year-old. But in in, in 1988, when my mother was watching the movie La Bamba.
0: I saw that movie.
1: She decided to name me after Richie Valens. And ever since then, my name has been misspelled because I'm Richie with a T, -T R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Whereas she named my brother after the reuben sandwich so you can infer who's the favorite song the one named after the musician or the one named after the sandwich <laughs> um but you know my mother my mother's everything to me you know on primary day i paid tribute to my mother because i would not be here today were it not for her unconditional love and the south Bronx is full of full of single mothers like mine who have struggled and sacrificed and suffered so that their children can have a better life than I, than I did. And uh, you know most of our essential workers, most of the heads of our households are, are women of color, like my mother. And so every day I wake up asking myself a simple question, am I doing right by the woman of color of the South Bronx? Am I doing right by the essential workers and the powerful mothers of the South Bronx? That, that's the guiding question of my, my political career
0: um more bi- more biography because i think for a lot of people this is their this podcast this episode is their introduction to you when you come to congress you will also be breaking a uh, a glass ceiling of sorts you will be the first afro uh, sorry first openly gay afro latino member of congress and i emphasize Afro-Latino because that is how you identify and you insist, rightly so, insist on, on being identified that way. Why?
1: I, I insist on embracing the full intersectionality of who I am. You know, you know th- there's a perception, there's been a narrative that you can either be Latino or Black. Um, but in fact, you can be both, you know, Afro Latinos like myself do exist. And, you know, as an Afro Latino, I'm seeking membership in both the Congressional Hispanic caucus and the Congressional black caucus, uh, because my Latino heritage and my blackness are equally important parts of who I am. And I'm not going to embrace one to the exclusion of the other. I'm not going to confine myself to an arbitrary binary imposed on me by society. Uh, I insist on embracing the full diversity and intersectionality of who I am.
0: And what about being openly gay? And I bring that up because the person, one of the people you ran against in the primary, uh, Ruben Diaz Sr., who for, I knew him from when I was in New York at the New York Daily News, and he was a, a, an abysmal figure then. Uh, but he was an outright homophobe. And so there you are running against him in a crowded primary. There were 13 of you all together, right?
1: I I was one of ultimately 11 candidates.
0: One of 11. And so, and he was favored to, Ruben Diaz Sr. was favored to win. And yet here you are, this openly gay candidate. How was that in terms of of campaigning? Did anyone try to use your sexuality against you?
1: You know, I ran... I won a race that I was widely expected to to lose. I was one of 11 candidates. It was the most fiercely contested congressional primary in New York City. And even though the South Bronx is said to be the most democratic district in America, uh, Ruben Diaz Sr., who was essentially a Trump Republican masquerading as a Democrat, um, was said to be the front runner. He had name recognition among more than 80% of the voters in the district. He once represented the Senate district that had the largest overlap with the congressional. He has the same exact name as his son, who's the most popular elected official in the Bronx. And he has an irreducible base of evangelical support, which people thought would serve him well in a crowded, complicated, chaotic race. And so there was a real risk that the worst homophobe in New York state politics could win the bluest district in america and it's worth noting that he's a supporter uh, of donald trump and you know i felt that this was a change moment and and that i was a change candidate and that people would see in me a new generation of leadership and so not only did we win the race but we defeated Diaz senior so decisively that we sent him into retirement uh, which is exactly where he belongs. So for me, the triumph of an openly LGBTQ candidate over the leading homophobe in New York state politics is a powerful testament to how far we've come as a society. And who would have thought that the first openly LGBTQ member of the New York City congressional delegation would come not from the village or from Hell's Kitchen or from Chelsea, but from the (laughs) South Bronx.
0: From the South Bronx.
1: Like that to me is a distinctive kind of breakthrough. Uh, in lgbtq representation
0: you know that is true and it didn't occur to me until you you mentioned it um you know we should also tell people that you didn't just sort of spring forth from out of nowhere to become congressman-elect from new york's 15th congressional district you were also a a two two term you're only allowed to serve two terms but in the New York City Council, you're chair of the Oversight and Investigations Committee. So you, this run for Congress was not your first time running for elective office. Correct.
1: I first ran for elected office uh, back in 2013. Uh, I was 24, openly LGBTQ, in a borough that had never elected an LGBTQ person. I had no ties to the political dynasties of Bronx politics, no ties to the party machine, but I was young and energetic and I knocked on thousands of doors. I went into people's homes, I heard their stories. I remember one voter telling me in the 40 years I've been living in the South Bronx, I've never had a candidate for public office or public official knock on my door. Hmm. And it was interactions like those that led me to win my first campaign on the strength of door-to-door face-to-face campaigning Uh, but seven years before then i was at the lowest point in my life i had dropped out of college i found myself struggling with depression and abusing substances i even lost my best friend to an opioid overdose i was struggling to come to terms with my sexuality there were moments when i thought of taking my own life because i felt as if the world around me had collapsed and then seven years later i became the youngest elected official in the largest city in America. And today I'm about to become the United States Congressman for the only home I've ever known, the South Bronx. So for me, you know, my story is the story of the Bronx. It's a story of struggle, but it's also one of overcoming.
0: Where, you just mentioned um, that you hit the lowest point um, of your life. And yet, here you are, uh, about to join the United States House of Representatives. Who or what saved you? Who pulled who who pulled you out of the tailspin that you were in?
1: My mother, uh, mentors like Jimmy Vaca, who's a former member of the city council. And mental health care. You know, it became so severe that I was hospitalized, and the care that I received was transformative. Like, I am a product of the transformative power of mental health care. You know, I feel no shame in admitting that I struggle with depression. I feel no shame in admitting that I take an antidepressant every day that enables me to function both as a person and as a professional. And it's been so transformative in my life that, you know, I won a fiercely contested council race. I've served with distinction in the city council for seven years. And and then I just won the most fiercely contested congressional primary in New York City. Uh, So I'm living proof that psychiatry can have a profound impact in improving people's lives. And I feel as a public figure, I, I owe it to the untold numbers of Americans who are struggling with depression and mental illness in their own lives. I owe it to them to be open and honest about my own struggles in the hopes of breaking the silence and shame and stigma that too often surrounds mental illness.
0: You know, I mean, you, you just in that last uh, answer, you are such an, such an inspiration when, and I've heard you tell this um, part of your story before in, in other interviews, what's been the reaction? Have people heard your interviews and come up to you and, shared their stories?
1: I think I I have a wide range of identities and lived experiences in in which people could see themselves and their own struggles. Uh, The the struggle that resonates the most profoundly with people is my struggle with mental illness Um, Mm. because everyone has either had mental illness in their own lives or know someone who has. Not everyone is LGBTQ, not everyone is Latino, not everyone is black, not everyone grew up in poverty but all of us have some connection, uh, to mental health and, and that's, it's a universal experience, a universal language we speak. And, and it's been refreshing and liberating for people to hear a public official be so open and honest about it, um, and, and, and actively break the stigma that, that has really kept people from being, uh, from fully coming to terms with their, with their, their struggles with mental illness.
0: Now, you mentioned um, we're going to get into the get into the politics now, because this is something I find fascinating. You mentioned a moment ago how you um, when you decided to run for public office, you didn't have any political connections. You didn't have any any political ties. This was when you ran for city council. Right. So now you decide to run for U.S. Congress. Again, in the bluest district in the United States, so running in the primary is tantamount to winning in the general. Um, you, when you decided to run, you not only did not get the backing of the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, correct? No support. No support from them.
1: No, no support from the DCCC or the local Democratic Party.
0: Okay. On the other side. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is the the symbol and the poster child for the left wing of the Democratic Party, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who did she endorse in that race?
1: Uh, she endorsed the Samuelis Lopez, who was endorsed by Bernie Sanders and uh, the Democratic Socialists of America. And so and the, the point of my
0: Right. And so the point my point of bringing that up is not you. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes, I I, I took note. (laughs) So,
0: but I'm bringing up these two bookends because to my mind, you're going to Washington as a free man. So do you view yourself as the ultimate swing vote in a chamber that will have a narrower Democratic majority than the previous session of Congress?
1: i'm not aiming to be a swing vote but i am fiercely protective of my own independence like i'm going to do what i believe is right for my values and for my district but it's true that i won my race independently of the democratic party the working families party the democratic socialists of america congresswoman ocasio-cortez and senator bernie sanders you know I, i won my race on the strength of my own grassroots operation in the Bronx. So I do have a mandate to govern independently and to carve out my own brand of progressive governance.
0: And so one of the first things you're gonna have to do as a member of Congress is vote for the leadership team and vote for Speaker. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has made it clear she's she's gonna run for Speaker again. Can she count on your vote?
1: She can count on my vote.
0: Wow, I, and that was fast and unequivocal. Why?
1: That's the easiest decision.
0: That's the easiest decision.
1: Yes. So you
0: have no. And I'm asking this question. I think because... she, she has
1: been an extraordinarily effective speaker when it comes to. I mean, think particularly during. First, I think she's been an effective counterbalance to the Trump administration. Um, she has led a ideologically diverse unwieldy caucus with strong personalities and she's managed to rein in those personalities effectively and during the obama administration uh you know she was a, she was one of the driving forces behind the passage of the affordable care act the stimulus package financial reform um you know she has a proven ability to pass sweeping legislation uh in, in, in moments of crisis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I, I consider her to be one of the finest legislative leaders in the history of the country. And, and she has a reputation for outworking everyone. Um, it's often said that she's the first to wake up and the last to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that she outworks everyone. Oh, yeah, I've heard from her on five occasions. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. No, she is. Uh, in, in my, I can only speak to my experience. She is proactive and engaging with members. I've I met with her personally at her office. I've received multiple phone calls, uh, the same is true. The, the leadership is, in my experience, my limited experience, leadership engages deeply uh, with the membership. I've been in constant communication with the speaker, with the majority leader, with the, you know, um, Hakeem Jeffries, who's the chair of the Democratic Conference, is a member of the New York City delegation. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them have been unfailingly uh, generous and gracious and helpful. This is
0: interesting um, to hear that you've had so much contact um with with the speaker and and with the leadership um i guess i'm wondering what are those what are those calls like
1: um the first call i received from the speaker came after the primary mm-hmm. and i was blown away i mean she knew the details that of was my in june story back in june back in june 2020. Uh, she she or it might have been early july or late june And she knew the the details of my personal story. Uh, She knew the comments I had made about my mother. Uh, She knew the circumstances of the race and and thanked me for preventing Ruben Diaz Sr. from becoming a member of the Democratic Conference. Uh, (laughs) And and then she spent 30 minutes going into the minutia of the CARES Act, the HEROES Act, and explaining the relevance it has for my district. Um, She has a razor sharp mind. What, like, I thought, it was, not, I, be, I thought it was going to be a pro forma call and say, congratulations, looking forward to working with you. And then on to the next person. It was like a, a much longer, a much more substantive conversation uh, than, than I would have expected. And, and I left that conversation thinking now I know why she's speaker. <laughs> I've always known why, but uh, it's one thing to see it from afar. It's something else to experience it firsthand.
0: And that was your first call. So then, the subsequent call, the subsequent calls were they of a similar tone or were they shorter? What were those like? Uh,
1: you we know, we made like we both appeared at an event for uh, there was an LGBTQ event, an LGBTQ fundraiser, um, and she actually remembered the conversation. I'm just impressed with her ability mm-hmm. uh, to retain details about members. You know, in some cases she's just simply calling to say thank you, but you know, she doesn't have to do that. <laughs> uh, right. And, and, you know, like I was helpful to the party after my primary and, you know, she made a point of, of calling me and thanking me for everything I had done for the party.
0: Now you said um, during an interview, I can't remember where I saw it, That you said your goal is to be a national champion for the urban poor. How will that manifest itself? What committees do you want to sit on? What legislation do you want to uh, push forth?
1: So I am operating under the assumption that the three most powerful committees, Appropriations, which oversees the budget, Ways and Means, which oversees the tax code, and Energy and Commerce, which has the broadest legislative authority. Those three committees historically are beyond the reach of a freshman. So so given those constraints, uh, the committee that most interests me are financial services because it has jurisdiction over housing, and housing is my greatest passion, and oversight because I have experience with oversight and investigations
0: and so okay so those are the committees and then is there a particular piece of legislation that you want to um put forth and get passed?
1: so for me the 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 starting point is uh, public housing you know public housing uh in new york city the new york city housing authority manages public housing uh, for a half a million New Yorkers. And if the New York City Housing Authority, otherwise known as NYCHA, were a city unto itself, it would be the largest city of low income Black and Brown Americans in the United States. And the New York City Housing Authority has been so savagely starved of federal funding that it has $40 billion worth of capital needs. There's an urgent need for new roofs and new boilers, new bricks and new elevators. There are senior citizens who are freezing during the winter because the boilers keep breaking down. Disabled residents who are stranded in their top floor apartments because the elevators keep breaking down. Children who have been poisoned by lead, and once you're poisoned by lead, it has consequences that haunt you for the rest of your life. And asthmatics who are struggling to breathe in their apartments in the face of molded and leaking conditions, These are the human consequences of federal disinvestment from the black and brown city that is public housing. And so my highest priority is to secure funding for public housing in order to address the capital need of $40 billion. And for me, the goal should not only be to rebuild public housing, but we could reinvent public housing as the greenest city in America. Like imagine public housing with rooftop gardens, with reskinning, with you know community-based health centers and community centers, with electric heating systems, with energy-efficient retrofits. Like, public housing could become the gold standard of sustainable, affordable housing in the United States. It's the natural laboratory for a green revolution in America.
0: I'm going to have to have you come back so we can talk more, more about that about that issue um i want to um bring you back to to something that you mentioned about speaker pelosi and that is in talking about her skill and lauding her skill you were talked about the like, the caucus that she has to that she has to manage and one of the things that you know has broken out into the open as a result of the caucus call after the election was that the factions within the party are at each other's throats again where you have um, the moderates who are are angry about, you know, the socialist tag and, quote unquote, defund the police. Uh, and then you've got the progressives basically saying, uh, leave us alone. It's not it's not our fault. You're walking into that. <laughs> You're walking into that how can the divisions within the party be bridged or are folks like me in the media making too much of what's happening within the caucus
1: uh i, I think both are true uh, uh <laughs> the the media loves to sensationalize but you're, you're sensationalizing uh, a, a, an actual divide that has persisted uh, within the party you know i, I find the debate nauseating because the, the, the outcome of the 2020 election has become something of a raw shock test. You know, one's interpretation of the election results is often a reflection of one's own ideological narrative. So the, the moderates see the election results as a rejection of leftism and the leftists see the election results as a vindication of leftism. And, you know, we're simply rehashing the same debate that has been unfolding in the party Uh, for the last two years. Uh, Am I confident that the party could be perfectly unified? No, because there are profound differences, not only in ideology, but in governing approach. But but the speaker has been extraordinarily effective at managing those differences in an unwieldy, ideologically heterogeneous caucus. Uh, And that's no easy task, and it's often a thankless task.
0: Um, speaking of one of the animating issues within within the caucus, if not in this particular election, just overall, is an economic message that resonates with, with all voters. How can Democrats develop an affirmative economic message that resonates?
1: Look, I, I prefer to focus on bread and butter issues that bring people together, I think, I found it striking that Florida voted for a $15 minimum wage, but then voted for Donald Trump, who opposes a $15 minimum wage, which tells me that the democratic platform is far more popular than our branding and messaging. Hmm. Uh, so I'm in favor of focusing like a laser on economic issues. You know, One issue that, that matters to me enormously is, is, is the need to end child poverty. Like your zip code should never be a barrier to how far you can go and how high you can rise in America, right? The present structure of the child tax credit is so regressive that it excludes a third of American families, the poorest families. And in a place like the South Bronx, two thirds of American families are excluded from the full credit of the child tax credit. So if we were to extend the child tax credit to the poorest families, we would cut child poverty by 40% in the span of a single year. In one year? In one year. You can cut child poverty by, okay. So, you know, there are seemingly incremental, quote unquote, incremental policies that can have a transformative impact in breaking the cycle of child poverty and putting pockets and putting money in the pockets of working people and American families whose spending is going to have the greatest impact in stimulating the economy. So, so I would focus on expanding the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, housing pay, unemployment insurance, put more people back to work, and put money in the pockets of struggling families so that we can, we can stimulate our economy. so, correct me
0: if I'm wrong, that, that's something that could be taken up by Ways and Means. Is that a Ways and Means Committee thing? Child
1: tax credit is Ways and Means,
0: yeah. Uh, I'm just going to give you some unsolicited advice. Maybe you should try to go for for ways and means. No harm in asking
1: uh, right? you've asked. Well, well you, look you can your your influence is not limited to your committee right you 're free to introduce whatever bill you want. you 're free to in, advocate for whatever priorities that matter to you. Uh, so I, I, I have a broad conception of power that extends beyond committee assignments.
0: Um, Since you brought up Florida, let me get you get your thoughts on one of the vexing things that come out of Florida is not only that they the state went for for President Trump, but for a lot of folks, the Latino vote and the president's um, the president's the attraction of President Trump for Latino voters. Is it solely Cuban Americans, uh, traditionally Republican sticking with the president, is it um, Venezuelans who hear the socialism moniker and rejected the Democrat? Um, Down in Texas, on the Rio Grande, President Trump got a larger share of the Latino vote than he did in 2016. Some of that is related to, according to the reporting, to to immigration. And so a lot of folks, particularly journalists, are scratching our heads like, how is that possible, given President Trump's four years of beating up on on the latinx community how is that possible what's your view of why the president was able to do better with the latino the latino electorate
1: one of the most important lessons learned from 2020 is never take voters for granted you know no voting bloc is a monolith uh and the latino vote is no exception you know having said that uh, The Latinos in South Florida represent an infinitesimal share of the Latino vote nationwide. And if you view it nationally, there was a resounding rejection of Donald Trump among Latino voters. My understanding is Latino voters were the second largest voting bloc in the 2020 election cycle and overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. So I think it's misleading. to to confine the analysis to particular areas like South Florida. If you look at it nationally, uh, the Latino vote went overwhelmingly for Biden. The Latino vote was as instrumental in winning Arizona as the African-American vote was in winning Georgia. And those were the two states that enabled Joe Biden to expand the electoral map. Uh, So I feel like there's been just a, a narrow focus on South Florida that has done more to obscure than to clarify the actual nature of the Latino vote. Um,
0: so now that we have um, uh, a Democratic administration coming into the into the White House, there will be a lot of jobs that need to be filled. And of course, the parlor game is: okay, which members of the Senate from blue states are going to get are going to get jobs. Um, there are two Democratic senators from New York. We know Chuck Schumer's not going anywhere. He's Senate minority leader. But there's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Who's to say that she you know, might not get plucked and given a position within the Biden administration? If that happens, Governor Andrew Cuomo will have to fill that seat is that something that you'd be interested in? And, you know, that could come, you know, who knows when that might happen. I mean, you'll be in the house and, you know, it won't be like overnight, but is that something you'd be interested in doing?
1: Much as I respect you, Jonathan, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm, I'm going re- to resist commenting on fanciful hypotheticals, uh, uh, but it's, 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 it's no state secret that I have uh uh, a great respect for the governor, and and we've had a good working relationship.
0: <laughs> I had to try. I really had to try.
1: But I'm gonna. But I'm. I'm. Look, I'm grateful to be. I'm. I'm about to represent what I consider to be the greatest congressional district in America. Uh, the South Bronx is an iconic congressional district. You know, the South Bronx historically has been known to be the poorest congressional district but COVID-19 has shown the South Bronx to be the essential congressional district. It's the home of the essential workers, mostly women of color, who put their lives on the line so that most of us could safely shelter in place. And the notion of representing those essential workers in Congress, in the House of Representatives, is the greatest satisfaction of public service. So I'm pleased exactly where I am.
0: Congressman-elect, Richie Torres from the great state of New York, from the South Bronx, congratulations on winning, officially winning your election. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: It was exciting to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.